Hello, this is producer Trent here as usual and welcome to another episode of the Science Shambles podcast. Bit of a book shambles crossover podcast today uh, because our two scientific guests have also got popular science books that have just come out. And with this episode going out on March 8th, International Women's Day, it also seems appropriate that we have two brilliant women scientists on the show uh, one of them, Professor Gina Rippon, talking about her book uh, and research on the gendered brain, which has also been covered on our blog network uh, by Dr. Dean Burnett. Her new book has just come out this week. And Dr. Julia Shaw, uh, her book, Making Evil, about the, the dark side of humanity, the science about why people do bad things, is our other guest, talking to Robin, of course. We hope you enjoy this episode. If you'd like to support everything we do at the Cosmic Shambles Network, you can go to patreon.com slash bookshambles and pledge uh, as little as a dollar a month. And that uh, helps us keep making all the podcasts and everything else we do. Or you can come along to one of our live events. The next two live events we've got coming up uh, is an evening of astronomy and music with Professor Chris Lintop from The Sky at Night and... Steve Pretty of the Hackney Colliery Band. That's at King's Place, March 20 and April 3rd. Tickets are just 10 quid. Uh, you can go to the King's Place website or the Cosmic Shambles events page at cosmicshambles.com to check those out. And now here is uh, today's episode. Just... Is he an alien abduction believer? I don't oh, know about question. that. He doesn't, yeah. thank you. I know he believes that the moon is a spaceship. Okay. I mean, this is Sorry, the thing that's so, so rubbish about it is it's not even original. It's all, you know, I don't know if you remember those early 70s books, Eric von Daniken. Oh, God, yes. All of these people yes. about how very racist books, but very covertly racist, yeah. which was that any sophisticated uh, civilization that has existed in what would have then been considered to be the third world can only have been created by an Aliens. alien technology because there's no way those people... Because they had all people... those Mexican... Look, Vonnegut was the one where all of those shapes in Mexico are from the landing strips for yeah. spaceships, that's right. And then yeah. you find out that the photo, because in the book you presume the photo is obviously of an enormous landing strip, and then you find out that's actually the real size. <laughs> I mean, it's incredible. There's, oh, it's, it's amazing. Like the Raelians. Have you come across the Raelians? Oh, yeah. The Raelian, the Raelian League. I think there, there's some a French journalist, so it must be something to do with it. We should just do a podcast on this. This is way more yeah, oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. So <laughs> there was one where there's this Claude Rail was a French journalist, and he was a bit like Ike in that he was, I think he was abducted by aliens and was then sent back to Earth to um, indoctrinate or educate, you know, earthlings. And then he got some followers, and they were the only ones who were going to survive when this. The, the aliens came back because they were the ones who'd been indoctrinated into the way to respond to these aliens. That, that and far off, sort of general religious ideas. <laughs> well, that's the interesting thing from it. Well, it's clearly the kind of thing that people want to believe. So somebody comes along and says that. Well, it's what partly what what 
Well, both of your books are... Well, we'll start off uh, by saying, uh, hello, welcome to uh, Science Book Shambles. Uh, and today, uh, well, the, the books particularly we're going to be talking about are Making Evil by Dr Julia Shaw and uh, Professor Gina Rippon's book, which is The Gendered Brain, which has on its proof copy something which already I got in trouble for when I was reading it on the train, because it says on the proof, do you have a female brain or a male brain? And someone went, oh, I think all of that's rubbish. I went, oh, no, 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 no. You'll realise that on the back it says, or are we asking the wrong question? So... What did they say when you said that? Oh, they went, oh, well, that's a relief. I think they'd also, yeah, they, they kind of, uh, and when I had it out at the BBC as well, someone went, oh, I went, no, it's okay, it's Give okay. Give them a copy of the book. Uh, yeah, well, that's the good thing. It starts the conversation immediately that's when you right, see that. Yes. Um, well, we were, we, before we were, well, you might have heard those bits of recording, I'm not entirely sure, but we we were talking about the the human brain and its necessity, I think, sometimes for simple narratives. And I would say what both your books share is, you know, whether it's about evil, that if we want to, we've said, well, some people are just evil. There's a kind of, you know, whether you want to say, you know, an evil gene, people are evil. And in the same way that in terms of the idea of the gendered brain, this this essentialism that you talk about, which is, well, you know, it's a lovely idea of, of equality, but in the end, it boys just turns out <laughs> your hardware, you know, we'd love it all to be equal, but the hardware is just not up to it. So, so both, they have, you know, are tackling issues that are so much more complex. In fact, shall we start off in, with, with in, in your book at one point, you, you talk a little bit about the work of, or, or quite often Simon Baron Cohen's work comes up, <laughs> and, and this idea that uh, women, well, they have all of this extra special empathy, empathy. which means that yep. that's why they do the caring things and, and a lot of the professions that aren't paid as well. Mm-hmm. And men are very good. They're all building things and yeah. love big objects. So tackling... That where was it for, for you? How I mean, I, I know that you've talked a little bit. You were uh, interviewed in the, the Observer uh, the day before we were recording this, and uh, talking about the fact that being a twin, <laughs> where you're, you're, you know, you're, you're, you have a brother, twin yes, brother. That's right. So you've seen this up close. So from quite an early <laughs> stage, you, you've seen this. Yeah. Well, I think the idea is the question you is posed on the cover of the book: Do you have a male brain or a female brain? That really is. The, the basis of my argument in that the idea that the bits of biology which determine the relevant reproductive apparatus also determine the kind of brain that you have, which also determines what you can be, what you can do, and that you can't change that, which is where you get this kind of idea that there's some kind of biological destiny that we all have. And however egalitarian we'd like to be, we're determined literally by by our biology and it's trying to fight that idea um which is effectively the basis of the book and saying that what's actually happening is that a world believes that believes that will create that brain um and so what you look at you think oh well males and females are clearly different because people get very aggravated when they say i don't know why you're wasting your time with this of course men and women are different and then they will cite examples of you know women like shopping, you know, and men don't. So clearly, you know, this is a DNA determining these kind of things. And then you have to say, well, actually, that's A, that's not true of everybody. And you have then get into the kind of statistical arguments because people who support that say, well, we're only talking on average. And that on average is quite invidious in the way people think scientists will say on average, thinking that we all understand that we've got two groups who say on average they're different. So, of course, we don't say everybody is different from everybody else. But the message that people get is that even if it is on average, men can be 
um, systemizes scientists' evil, <laughs> uh, whereas women are empathic and caring and not very good at science. And that's the message that people have. And then, of course, they then treat their children, pupils, employees, whatever, with that in mind. And we now know the brain is so plastic and so eager to learn what's out there in the world that the brain will absorb that as the information and then that will become part of how your brain works. Well, that is, I mean, you, you start off with a, 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 is it Gustave Le Bon uh, <laughs> quote, which is, <laughs> I've, I've read, uh, well, the, the, uh, women represent the most inferior forms of human evolution and are closer to children and savages than to an adult civilised yeah. man. And then, as you said, he then talks about the fact that, yes, sometimes there will be women who are very good at things, which we weren't expecting, but that is like a gorilla with two heads. I mean, that, so that all feeds in, yeah, I yeah. suppose, to the narrative, which well, is course, if you know what you're looking a, for. A better scientist than... Le Bon actually believed in the inferiority of women. Of course, that was Charles Darwin. Mm. He was a real misogynist. And, and, you know, he was explaining it in evolutionary terms. But it does because, I mean, we moved on a little bit from there. So we're not necessarily talking in terms of two-headed gorillas. But, but there is still this belief, um, particularly about science, which is one of the areas I'm really interested in. Why is there this big underrepresentation of women in science? And there's this kind of underlying narrative that, Whatever we'd like to do, whatever initiatives we have, you know, it's women just don't quite have the right kind of brain. And you get the CERN physicists standing up and saying, you know, we shouldn't be wasting our money on training women physicists or you know, the Google memo. Um, you know, diversity is a waste of time because women aren't good at Google type jobs. Um, so even in, you know, like well, last year was the CERN physicist, that this kind of narrative is still informing our impression of, of, of the world and, and the people we're dealing with, and ourselves too. I mean, I think that's what concerns me a lot. I go and talk in s schools and lots of girls, you know, are put off doing science because science, science is hard. So there's this whole thing, they don't like doing it because they get it wrong and their whole MO is, you know, perfectionism. And careers, teachers are saying, well, science, you know, there's not many men in science, so and not many women in science, sorry. So, you, you know, you should... Perhaps think of another career, um, you know, girls who are going to get a star in physics, but they don't because they think that's really not for me. As I, I remember the first time I met Jocelyn Belbernell, who of course has done incredible work uh, in terms of you know fighting to get more women in, in STEM. Um, she said when you know having discovered pulsars, the only question she was asked at the news conference while they asked all the old men was, uh, "Are you taller than Princess Margaret?" <laughs> Which I thought was you know, if, um, that. I mean, the statistics you give in the book, and I'm sorry I haven't got them, but, but of of women who did very well in GCSE uh, science subjects, yeah. and yet then the translation of that to A levels and beyond. Yeah. Yeah. Still, especially in, in in physics, it seems that 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 seems yeah. to be uh, and and is it true of mathematics as uh, as well. Maths as well, less so. Physics and computer science seems to be an area which is proving quite impenetrable to all of the the initiatives that that that, that people are trying to um, overcome the, this problem. And it is a problem. It's, it's it's not necessarily just an equality issue. It's we're. I think the statistics like we're 400,000 STEM scientists short every year in the UK because not everybody's going into the science subjects. And you think, well, these are clearly people who could, but they choose not to. But there is this kind of also this underlying narrative where they look at gender equal countries and say, actually, if you look at the representation of women in science in those countries, it's actually bigger. And so sometimes you get this not 
obviously not in the same terms as Le Bon, but, you know, women aren't are choosing not to do science because it doesn't feel... They don't feel comfortable doing science. Well, when you're talking about the, the, the plasticity, again, there's, there's a quote in the book, uh, brains, unlike genitals, uh, are plastic. I can't remember exactly who, who said that. <laughs> that was from, from Rebecca Jordan-Young. Yeah, yeah, that's right. Yeah. And that... <laughs> well, even that's not... <laughs> where are we, we, we getting in terms of understanding? Because I, I, you know, I, I have a son, and it was fascinating to me from quite an early age to watch the way boys behaved at a party and the way girls behaved at a party. And I was immediately thinking, you know, how much... I mean, I remember when he was two and he fell over and he turned to another two-year-old boy and said, I've just hurt my knee, would you kiss it better? And his mother leapt between the two children said, I don't think we want that kind of thing starting. <laughs> and, and you're like... Seeing in certain parents these... But I was fascinated. You know, this culture, this... During all of that pruning that's going on, you know, how are we able to try and 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 track that? At a, you know, especially in babies. Mm-hmm. Well, I mean, if you mean at the kind of the physical level, we're really only just starting to be able to do mm. that to look at tiny, tiny brains um, even before birth. And the evidence is is so far is that there really aren't major physical differences. I mean, there are differences related to the kind of characteristic hormone differences, but in terms of you know, how children play or the toys they choose. We don't know enough about how that translates from what the brain is like to how they behave. But what we do know is that currently there doesn't look like there's any differences between boys and girls. So there's clearly a very powerful influence influence producing this, which some people would say, oh, it happened so early that it must be biological, assuming that babies are somehow immune from cultural influences as though... And then people say, oh, I was brought up my children gender neutral. And, you know, he eats, cuts his piece of toast into a gun, you know. And, and I think that's the kind of issue that people see. If you have a mindset, you, you tend to see what confirms that mindset. So there's probably lots of really punchy little girls. Um, but what you tend to see is that boys are the ones who get into fights and girls are the ones who look after dolls, not realising that if you actually forgot all of that bit, you know, sex unseen, gender new, you know, gender irrelevant, you'd probably see there's just a big array of behaviour and that boys and girls are, you know, along that dimension. And I think those kind of people believe, you know, if they've got a mindset, a belief set, that's what they see. And you have to really make a big, big impression for them to say, do you know what? You're right. I don't get a lot of that, actually. But <laughs> and I think that's and the idea also that the babies are, are free of cultural influences. That's one of the messages of the book in the 21st century. One of the most important things the brain does is make us social. And it starts right from the beginning. I mean, babies are actually becoming social much more quickly than they're becoming cognitively able human beings. So if you've got the kind of pressures, which are particularly worse, I think, in in the 21st century, then you've got a baby being shaped from from birth. And even when I go on my rant about gender reveal parties, (laughs) possibly before... (laughs) It's fair, well, that bit of mould. I mean, Julia, in your, in your book, you talk a little bit about the the studies of of of, of Hitler 
different versions have been done to try and justify, you know, oh, the, the, there are specific things. I can't remember the exact... It's not psychopathology, is it? There's a specific word for... Psychopathy? That. You mean psychopaths? Uh, no, no, no. The, the actual... The, there's a... Uh, um, somewhere here, I've noted down that there, there was a, uh, a, a specific uh, word used for that kind of biography, the oh, kind right. of psychological biography of, of, of someone. Um, again, trying to... Well, I, I'm just. I, well, first of all, I'm intrigued about when this became something of interest to you because you initially dealt with false memories, didn't you? That that's an area of your expertise. I did. Uh, so it's fascinating to hear the gendered brain version of this, <laughs> partly because I think one of the main reasons I went into criminal psychology is because of a woman named Elizabeth Loftus. She is a rock star, as far as I'm concerned, in psychology, and she does research on false memories specifically. Now, false memories are memories of things that never actually happened, and specifically in the context of the justice system, they can have really um, devastating implications for things like wrongful convictions. And so she's studied this for a long time. And I think genuinely, because she's one of the only visible role models at that level, in our field at least, in criminal psychology, it made it seem like a field I could go into. Like I could I could study false memories because look, there are women here. I, I can't I, it, I know it had an impact. I also know that studying psychopaths, uh, there's a woman called Jennifer Scheme. Same idea. It was having these visible role models has such an impact, I think, on sort of budding scientists and, and young women in general that I think we, we all need to focus more on making sure that we can see women. I mean, it's the same with if you look at how many women uh, write popular science books. It's like one in 10 at best. I mean, some statistics show it's close to one in 50. I mean, these are atrocious numbers. And so I think uh, socialization matters hugely and we need to continue, continue investing efforts in making sure that we showcase how brilliant women are and that there are lots of career paths that are available to us. Um, so, yeah, so I came from researching false memories. And well, you tell an amazing story that, uh, in, in the false memory of a, uh, a man who murdered his father mm -hmm. quite early on. Yeah, so I wrote a book called The Memory Illusion, and in response to that, I um, got quite a few letters from <laughs> inmates in various prisons around the world. Um, and a lot of them are not particularly eloquent, shall we say. Um, but this one, I got this letter, and it was a very well-written, very eloquent letter. And I, it caught my attention simply because it was uh, so well-written. And he, the, the, it was a person who said, I am in prison because I murdered my father. And uh, I am trying to understand what happened. Can, can you send me a copy of the book? It's not available in the prison library, <laughs> which I thought was also, this alerted me to the whole thing of prison libraries and how we actually need to give more books to those kinds of spaces as well. But I sent him the book, and he responded with a pink flower and more of an explanation as to what was going on, which was that he had apparently um, murdered his father by, and I've changed the details a little bit, but um, stabbing him to death 50-ish times, so total overkill. And he claims that he did it because he had a memory rushback of abuse so he was the sole carer for his aging father. He had no history of crime. He was a, uh, a lecturer. He, was, he had, was in an academic space. He was, as far as you could tell, a, quote, good person. And then he committed this heinous act. Um, and he claims that it happened because of a false memory. So he says that because he was undergoing treatment for alcoholism, social workers repeatedly suggested to him that he must have been abused as a child, which is why he was an alcoholic, was the, was the idea. And he kept saying, no, I wasn't, no, I wasn't. 
And he said at this point, there was this flood of what he thought were memories for that moment. And in revenge, he killed his father. And almost immediately thereafter, he says, he realized that that couldn't have happened. And he's still in prison. And he's not denying that he committed this act. But I, I think he was really wrestling, and he possibly still is wrestling, with this possibility that he did something so terrible based on a false memory. And so I think what it taught me is that there's twofold. So I think sometimes with false memory cases, we hunt monsters that don't exist. So if you have a false memory of something that you think happened but didn't, you can point at innocent people who didn't do anything and call them monsters. So that's one side of it. And the other side is that you can be influenced by what you think is your own past and act in a way that is completely out of line with your character and become, at least temporarily, this, if you will, other kind of person. And so you can temporarily become, again, using the word, even though I don't like the word, uh, monster, but you can become this temporary um, person who you, you would never expect yourself being capable of. Well, but again, both the books, the, the, I, f I felt reading them together, but the danger of inflexible thinking about why we are who we are and mm. what we are, whether that is because you believe that the sex you are makes you who you are and that is why you must act. Or at the same way, I mean, some of the, one of the, the your chapters in your book, you, you talk about paedophilia. Mm -hmm. And the fact that we have this problem, which is the, the immediate, well, I'm thinking in fact today, where the day after the Oscars, thinking about the, the film that was made uh, about the two boys that killed Jamie Bulger. And this kind of outrage that's been going on because to dare to understand why the moment you can just say these actions have been committed because someone is evil someone has these uh in the same way i think with liam neeson the the fact that to tell a story about himself which was him saying this i was not a good human being there i did a wrong thing that doesn't matter now the the, the outrage means that in fact people become more closed in into what they believe they should be projecting and so i mean that that seems to be one of the hardest things in terms of being human which is we are this unusual creature which has an outside expression of ourselves and an internal version which may be a, a total disparity bet between the two but we have our social well and it's assuming that a single behavior defines a human being so i think we we do make that attribution bias where we assume that because someone did something once that that's the kind of person they are um rather than realizing that we're all human beings we're all complex there's nuance there's context there's all the there's socialization there's all these bits that come together and this is the other thing i think when you point looking for quote evil it's this intrinsic characteristic, right? It's this, you are fundamentally bad if you're labeled evil, or so the assumption goes. And so to see the humanity and to try and empathize with or understand people who have done terrible things uh, seems taboo. And, and I, this is something that, I, that effectively is the main point of the book, is that we need to talk desperately about the things that are most uncomfortable to talk about. Those taboo topics, we need to address them head on. Everything from terrorism to pedophilia to aggression to serial killing. To, I mean, everything you can think of that you might associate with the word evil, I think that's specifically some of the most important things we as human beings need to try and understand. Otherwise, we will never be able to prevent these kinds of things from happening. Well, you say at one point in one of the chapters of the book, you say that you, you do worry that, that technology will, will destroy us in terms of uh, particularly, you know, the, the, the way of communication at the moment. <laughs> so I wonder if, you know, because that does seem to be the speed in which people, I mean, I think, Gina, I've, I found it fascinating where I hadn't realised quite how much overt misogyny there was until social media became as big as it did. Mm. And suddenly I see things like my friend Josie, who I normally present book shambles with, every time she would give an opinion that was uncomfortable for, you know, and for very mind, you know, 
nothing. Some of the aggression she's had towards her, and that was a, a, quite a sharp learning curve to mm. go this year. You know, so it's gross out there. This bit yeah. of people, oh, yes. what yes. should be this, you know, global village of communication, whatever you want to call it, actually becomes an increasing silence. Well, it's if people hear things they don't like to hear, and if the male female, for example, is is so embedded in ourselves as the key part of our identity that if somebody comes along and says actually you know biologically being male or female is 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 rather less relevant than all sorts of other aspects and if you um you know it's a useful hook I mean, i've got a, a colleague who says oh, of course women have got better memory than men because my wife always remembers everybody's birthdays <laughs> and you think well there could be quite a lot of other explanations for that but the prime you know the prime hook the thing that comes up first she's female so she's good at remembering birthdays so women are good at memory so and it is quite comfortable and our brain actually goes along with that because our brain is constantly trying to make life easy for ourselves so our brain is generating algorithms and saying if this is how the sentence begins you know like a predictive text this is likely how it's going to end and it usually does so it kind of guides you through the world so you're constantly getting feedback yeah yeah boys are different from girls um you know my girl pupils are different from my boy pupils my female employers are different etc and it kind of it becomes a self-fulfilling prophecy particularly as it also feeds into those pupils and employees etc who will you know not choose to go for promotion because they don't tick 100 percent of the qualification boxes or something and so you you then get this perpetuating aspect of 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 concepts like male female brains or evil or something because people can say it, it's comfortable they wouldn't like to think that maybe this is the kind of thing i might do mm. but they wouldn't because that you know i'm not in that category and i think that's a core probably in both our books this is the same this is a really key thing is that we're all capable of well i i think at least we're all capable of certainly thinking and probably doing everything pretty much. Um, I mean, barring maybe, uh, you know, I would probably say everything. Uh, Certainly when it comes to things, behavior sort of evil related or crime, for example, I think everyone is capable of the worst possible things you can think of. It's, I think there's different plausibilities. I think there's more risk factors for some people. There's protective factors for others. But I think we have to assume that we're all capable of the same kinds of things and that violence, for example, isn't just a male thing. But then asking the question of why are most people who are in prison for violent offenses, why are they male? And so I also argue that it's socialization because you can even just go around the world and see different rates. And you can, I mean, to use a, to to do sort of the same error as your friend with the my wife has great memory. But I mean, I would suggest that you you're not a violent offender, are you? Have you committed? Have you ever been in prison for a violent offense? This I wasn't expecting to be cornered so quickly <laughs> in the podcast. Um, no, no. You... So I think it does a disservice to men as well to sort of stereotype and say, you know, this is an expectation, or men are just more violent, men are just more aggressive because, and then the, the wonderful yeah. because testosterone. That is such a fascinating because I've seen that so often again at parties and stuff mm. where the boys are allowed, not always, but very often you will see a, an allowance of 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 a level of of, of violence towards other children. Which is kind of just battered off because that's boys, as you said, yeah, boys, boys will be boys. Now that you bring up the testosterone thing, so again, the the hormone element. Both you talk about about the the, the research into I, I can't remember 
Now, you do the guinea pig testicle milkshake drinking story of the 19th century. Like me, you yeah. talk about the removal of the cockerel's testicles and then the implantation. So oh, let's I deal with that as well. It's the original. I still brought my huge Venn diagram with the crossover because it, it was fascinating where you, where you get these moments of, of crossover. Now, you know, but this, this talk, again, you talk about quite a few of the kind of the illusions of, for instance, you talk about premenstrual tension and that seems to have a cultural, you know, yeah. you go, the, the cultural expectations of what will happen and, and assigning that to certain behavioural traits. Yes, I think, I mean, it, it, psychologists call it attribution theory. So if if there's a, a, a kind of concept out, of the, out, out there which is useful, seems to make sense in terms of your general expectation of life, um, and you need an explanation for the way you feel or the way you behave or the way somebody else is behaving, that's quite a useful hook, which then, of course, becomes self-fulfilling because you say, oh, look at the instances of, you know, um, women being aggressive, etc., premenstrually, and even to the event that... um, the 1980s, I think it, it could be a, a defence in law. I mean, I think there was a couple really? of women. Yeah, there was a couple of women who, Katharina Dalton, actually was the expert witness um, who'd committed who had committed murder, and they were allowed to plead premenstrual tension as as, as a defence. Um, and, the, and in a, in a way, you you could see this as a double-edged sword because some people will say yes, but you know the, the hormonal effects are profound and the changes. A, a, a dramatic. Again, this is the kind of on average thing. They are for some people, but not for everybody. But the whole concept of the premenstrual tension aspect was this kind of vulnerable biology argument, which was sort of started in the 19th century when women were pressing for equal rights to equal access to education. And people were saying, well, you know, inside her pretty little head, I think is one of the chapter titles, which is, yes, fair enough. But, you know, your brain really can't take that kind of thing and then you're going to get this concept anorexia scholastica you know if you over educate women then they won't be able to reproduce you know the end of the world as we know it kind of thing um so so that was the kind of extreme version of that argument but there is still this idea the kind of raging hormone story that at the you know women's biology is unpredictable can make them unpredictable because men make such a good job of all the things they do on their nice levels of oh they've done a great job running the world that's right yeah. i was building some no stuff wars, earlier no. i think i built a bridge this morning something like that and and there's a lovely quote about i think it's in the book about when um the bay of pigs disaster you know when the you know the cuban missile missile crisis um and uh i think he was maybe the head of the fbi afterwards i can't remember he said wasn't it lucky we didn't have a woman president because just imagine what might have happened if some woman subject to her raging hormones had been in charge of the nuclear button and you think and what were the men doing at the time (laughs) well also john f kennedy was apparently in a terrible state at that point from the painkillers from the all the this, well, he also had As- Addison's disease, so the kind of hormonal fluctuations that he would have been subject to would have been really dramatic. Because the stories I've read, it was it was it wasn't his even-handedness; it was other people. Going, we better interfere because he's a little bit, yeah. That, that's sort of, but that's a fascinating thing to me as well, which is uh, again the the presumption that if if someone suddenly. If, you know, shows a temperament which will be again totally acceptable for male temperament, and they go, "Oh, we see our hormones are now creating yeah. this monster." Yeah, time of the month. Yeah, Nord. <laughs> well, you have a the, the line about where is it that uh, somewhere here. Uh, um, 
asked what the reason w- women should be barred from the space program. They said because mm-hmm. of uh, temperamental psychophysiologic. They were temperamental yeah, yeah. psychophysiologic humans. Right. And I, I talked to Sue Nelson, who just wrote a book about uh, Wally Funk, who oh, right. was one of that. You know, is incredible. Is that a Lovelace program? That uh, yes, that's right. Yeah, and, 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 and incredible. She was. She was excelled like so many of of the women who were on the very brief period of time there was the. We were yeah. talking about that. How much of a difference would it made if a woman had stood on the moon as well? How much does that, yeah. you know, when you're well, talking about... Certainly for about, role models. Yeah, yeah absolutely. It changes there's the narrative There's a lovely so story, I don't know if it's relevant, but one of the reasons they didn't have women astronauts was because they suddenly thought women are going to need sanitary products. And they sent the male physicists to work out how many sanitary products women might need if we sent them to the moon. And they over-exaggerated by about a hundredfold. So they thought they'd need, like, an extra spaceship tagging along <laughs> behind. So they thought the practically the spaceship... <laughs> Well, that's a fascinating. That, there's, a, there's a film called The Love Witch. I don't know if either of you've seen it. It's uh, it's very. But the, the the woman who made it, one of the things in it, she, she is this woman who creates these potions to uh, make men fall in love with her. But she always gets the balance slightly wrong, and they become overly obsessed and just fall apart and become pathetic. But one of the things she does is when she's making one of her potions, she uses a used tampon. And the reason that she placed that scene in was she saw the statistics of how many men had ever actually seen tampons at all. Really, you know, people in relationships in long term. Yeah. That this separate world mm. is uh, um, sorry. That's a that's yes, so. That's a, but it's Dan a fascinating. I, I highly recommend that film. It's it's, it's brilliantly made. Um, while we're on that toxic masculinity, which is something that you talk about, and you talk about Duntley and Bus as well. Uh, that this idea about killing. Uh, that they say, you know, the, the again getting the balance of, I suppose the keys to heaven opened the gates to hell. The old uh, Richard Feynman line, which is that certain things that we would consider to be terrible may well they were saying evolutionary advantages. Uh, for instance, the idea of killing, and that they said, you know, men, not women, have evolved bodies and minds designed to kill. Yeah, although I do also question that in the book. Um, oh no, sorry, I'm not saying you. I'm not saying you, but I'm saying that that's what they were. You know, you yes. talk about there. I mean, there's lots of controversial evolutionary uh, psychologists who have published around things like why men have been designed to rape and uh, sort of. It seems a, a g- justifying in terms of trying to explain, uh, kind of like our friend Darwin, uh, or uh, trying to justify bad behavior and sort of saying it's natural. This is this is just how men are. Um, and that's hugely problematic. But in terms of a different line of evolutionary argument, which I do think is fascinating, uh, is murder fantasies. So the fact that there's been some research on um, how many people have murder fantasies, and it turns out that in repeated studies, repeated experiments, uh, most people suggest that they have at some point had a murder fantasy, both men and women. So more than half of the sample in both cases, uh, which I think is fascinating. So whenever I do talks now, I say, close your eyes, put your hand up if you've ever had a murder fantasy. (laughs) And like before I've even finished the question, I'll have people throwing their hands up, going, finally, we're talking about this. Uh, But their argument is that because it's so prevalent, perhaps there's this idea that there's something adaptive about this idea of fantasizing, about thinking something through, doing a thought experiment. And they argue that there, it might be that we have these murder fantasies, and not just murder fantasies, but fantasies of bad behavior, to put it sort of broadly, uh, more generally. And it might be that it allows us to think through a situation and effectively see the consequences and decide, I don't want these consequences, which might actually make us more inhibited in our behavior in terms of not engaging in that way. Now, it's a bit complicated because some murder is also... There, there are murders who uh, murder people who murder who have murder fantasies as well. So there is a link, 
But it seems to be that the vast majority of people who have murder fantasies don't go on to murder. And that might be adaptive. So again, this thinking things through is actually a really good way of engaging uh, effectively a morality and, and making better ethical decisions possibly in the real world. So now, that's, that idea of a murder fantasy, where, where do we draw the line between what might be a kind of an, an impulsive thought, which is only thought because it's taboo, Mm-hmm. as opposed to actually desire. Because I think that that's an area which I find really fascinating where, you know, it's reading some of, you know, Freud, where I think, do you know what? I'm not sure whether that person actually wants to do that with their mother. I think they might be thinking <laughs> that because they know that's what the society says must not be done. So it, it's not actually an urge as such. It's the, you know, the thought that says never I mean, Freud is probably one of my least favorite people. <laughs> Do you know what? I, I, had, a, I had an idea. <laughs> You're looking, you, I can see it in your, you can see it in your, uh, the, the slight fear emerging as I stare you down. Uh, yeah, he's not my favorite. But um, yeah, I, I think that we, you're right in, in, in terms of do we desire to actually kill someone when we have a fantasy, for example, or is it just a passing thought? And that is a meaningful question. Um, but I guess, uh, and I guess much of the time it's, it's a bit more than a passing thought, and that would turn it into more of a fantasy, sort of rather than just a five-second sort of ooh. And you know, what if I swerve the car slightly? I mean, who, I don't know who hasn't thought that. At one point. Like, <laughs> yeah. how easily could I kill myself and others without it being a suicidal ideation, without it being something more serious, really? Uh, and then, of course, not doing it. Most of us, luckily. Um, but I think if, so. If murder fantasy generally is a bit more than that. So it's a bit more of a plan, sort of picturing how that how you would. For example, throw someone out the window and the consequences of that. Um, usually bosses are classic targets. So bad day at the office. <laughs> sitting have you, have you had that then? I have definitely had murder fantasies. But in cafes, it's when right. there's really annoying people and I'm trying to work. And I just, I just, oh, I just, oh. <laughs> like, I feel like you haven't. I'm trying to, I'm, no, I'm trying to work out if I have. <laughs> because I think, because I read Therese Racquet at quite an early age, and I think I realised that it, the murder wouldn't be a relief of anything; that it just mm, makes things just worse. Work. So yeah. thank heavens for uh, my uh, arrogant, uh, brief uh, um, teenage reading of French literature. It may well have saved me from a lot of murder yeah, fantasies. I'm trying to think. I'm tr- yeah, I'm, sorry, I'm just really fascinated by those. But, um, do, but when you say murder, is it in terms of like really plan it out, as you say, as opposed to the person that you know? pushes you out the way on the train or, you know, you kind of... It, that kind of road rage type, that's not really murder. <laughs> I mean, if it's a way of getting back at them, but it's, you're I mean, not thinking, features. I am going to f- chase that person and find out where they live and set their house on fire or something. So it wouldn't be a plan necessarily. So you're not sort of Googling how to <laughs> yeah, yeah, to. how to get supplies to do whatever it is you're, you're thinking of. I, I think it mostly is uh, constrained to, to your imagination. Okay. Um, but I, I presume that the, the way that it manifests in different people is in different ways. And I know that some people also have ongoing fantasies in this direction. And certainly when you move into the direction of like OCD, you can get sort of circular uh, yeah, thoughts. Ruminant. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay. Rumination. Yes. Yeah. So, and I I think for me, what's interesting about it is that these kinds of thoughts scare us. And so we just try to not engage with them at all rather than thinking about what is this maybe good for and what can I, uh, at what point is it problematic? And I guess it's the same with me. So in the book, I also talk about um, sexual fetishes. I talk about tech. I talk about so many different kinds of categories of things and behaviors. And the whole, the question is effectively every time, how do we go from small everyday thoughts and behaviors and end up at somewhere extreme, somewhere like serial killing for the for the aggression chapter. Um, how do I, in baby steps, potentially get from one to the other? And at what point do I need to be worried? Because okay. I think we do sometimes worry about things we shouldn't, and we don't worry about things we should. So I think it's it's understanding all the different nuances and all the different types of behavior more in depth. 
Well, you mentioned a little bit about because you, you, you talk about the Jeffrey Dahmer case, mm-hmm. which, again, when the, there is this kind of fetishization also of serial killers, and mm-hmm. I think there's a new series about Ted Bundy and stuff like this, and who Ted Bundy seems a very, very different kind of, you know, sometimes they're all lumped together, but he seems to be a very different kind of uh, serial killer to someone like Jeffrey Dahmer. Yeah. Who seems to have, the, the, there's a kind of a different form of, of, of tragedy within him. Yeah, I mean, so Jeffrey Dahmer himself said that the reason he um, murdered and dismembered and did lots of other terrible things to um, particularly young adult men uh, is that he was so lonely that he wanted to effectively build a zombie that he would keep with him at all times because he was worried about people going away from him. So it was from a, and it's not, and this is also I think really important is to try and explain and understand is not to excuse. So it's never to say this is okay. It's just to say, where did this come from? And if we're assuming that it's not coming from some evil sort of supernatural, uh, out sort of intrinsic bad, let's assume it's coming from something human. What is that human characteristic that might be contributing to this behavior? And at least in his own explanations, he said he was so lonely that he wanted to create a zombie, which is quite different than other motivations for, for other serial killers. But there, the, the question around sort of sexualization and um, almost glamorizing serial killing, I think, is really interesting. Um, and, and also the, the pushback that comes when we pre- represent serial killers who potentially were actually attractive as attractive. The sort of, oh, well, you're casting sort of hot actors in these roles. And you're going, well, that's part of the reason they could kill repeatedly is because they were charming and attractive and people didn't have their sort of detectors on where they maybe should have. And they over relied on their instinct that this person is trustworthy. Because that's a whole other, that's a whole chapter on that on creepiness and how. We, yeah, your index of creepiness, long fingers, and then the least <laughs> eyes closed creep- together. <laughs> is it, there's a lovely, apparently the least creepy profession is is it a meteorologist. Yeah. You know, which is who oh, would have thought? I don't know. I'm I find some meteorologists quite creepy. <laughs> I, I you know. But it, but yeah, it's uh, I think it's fascinating what we rely on as human beings as these shortcuts, these cognitive shortcuts, where we're trying to simplify the world into easier to navigate pieces, but that in, in the process of doing that, we risk endangering ourselves because we're relying on the wrong cues um, and we're just oversimplifying the world. So what do we do to, talking about those kind of shortcuts, again, where we talk about, you know, the presumptions of male and presumption of female behaviour, what do you, I mean, you, you in, in your book you say it, it, the likelihood of having equality in terms of the number of people uh, in leading physics roles in, in the UK is something like 2060, you know, and... and in, uh, <laughs> And, uh, oh, it's worth, and then another country, you know, yeah, even, yeah. even further out. What do you feel are the the best ways that we can try and... and... I, th- I think for me, the, the whole business about... I mean, it's again, it's language, it's, it's the terms that are used. And it's interesting, um, we'll come back to Simon Baron-Cohen, in, in, in fact, he talks about, it opens his book with the phrase, you know, the female brain is hardwired. For empathy, the male brain is hardwired for systemizing, etc. Then later on in the book, he says, of course, you don't have to be a man to have a male brain. You don't have to be a woman to have a female brain. At which point, I think, why have you called them male and female brain then? And I think what I'm saying, where this is going, is that if we could get rid of this idea that gender is somehow relevant, if you say, you know, this this child is, is really good at constructing things... It would be great, you know, they'd obviously enjoy these kind of toys. This child is, you know, really likes um, dressing up, creating, 
fantasies, maybe, and, and focused on that rather than assuming that one is because one's a boy and one's a girl. And from that, everything else follows. So I think it's really important to try and get away from the idea that, that gender is somehow relevant. And I think that that will help. But I think it's really it's got getting harder because I think in the 21st century that the whole gender bombardment, social media, um, is is much more powerful than it used to be. And I mean, we're seeing it in toy manufacturing, clothes. Um, and, and some people, you know, do a bit of the kind of eye rolling. Oh, yeah. Well, well, why does it matter that we have gender reveal parties or that we dress baby girls in pink with hairbands, etc.? And I think all of those, actually, they do matter. And I think though, making people aware that that matters and making them look at a person in terms of their strengths and weaknesses as opposed to them being male or female would be a great way forward. And, and I think that could could get us away from the idea that that um, you know just tick the XX or the XY box, and after that, that's all you needed to know because because we know what those mean. Well, there's, I'm sure you know the organisation things like let toys be toys, Great. all of those <laughs> things, which are just to say, I, I, that's what I don't understand. I think I was I was fortunate to grow up with two older sisters who were, you know, far better at sport and things like. That. And I think just having those as as models are, are around you makes it because I, I i do find it i realize there's certain things that i do which i'm sure are, are because of you know you know my presumptions of you know that that cultural thing but that but i i in the core of it i don't understand why people care so much apart from their own personal fragility what you know why they should care about going we need it doesn't matter it, it, they, I, do, I, they do care i mean yeah, I think... and it seems that the aggression that we talked about <laughs> seems to be an incredible an example of some of the kind of trolling i get i think i put in the book you know it's it's it's, it's it, people get really upset you know of course men and women are different Ooh, a bit like the person on the train this morning <laughs> you know they get quite challenged and um you know, I went to. I gave a talk to the University of the Third Age, and some guy at the end said, "This is all rubbish." I went to a coffee morning last week, and all the men stood on one side and talked about football, and all the women stood on the other and talked about shopping. You know, and I waited for the. <laughs> but that was it. That's all. All he needed to know. You know, you, I could have stood there for forty minutes showing my carefully prepared PowerPoint about men's and women's brains. Is it mostly but... men who? fight it or do you also I presume also women but I feel it's like it would be question. actually what's interesting is that men are more likely to say I know men and women are different the criticism I get from women is more that oh you're undermining our campaign that women bring something special to the table uh, okay. because if you're saying that actually that it's not that special you know they're saying but we've been trying to push for 50% representation on the front bench in David Cameron's cabinet and you're saying that it doesn't you know it doesn't necessarily mean that all the females you pick will be empathic if that's what you want right um, okay. which i think we could probably demonstrate fairly carefully with that particular example but i think that's that, that so so it, it you can see where that's coming from mm-hmm. you know if you're treated as inferior and there's an opportunity to say actually we've got these great powers that you need to harness mm-hmm. and somebody comes along and says actually quite a lot of other people have those powers too it, that must be quite annoying. Apparently, it is quite annoying. <laughs> Fair. <laughs> I guess in terms of uh, the conversation around gender, so it feels like, to me, and this might be my own little bubble, uh, but it feels like we've been having a lot more conversations about gender and what it means and, and the difference between gender and sex and sort of trans issues um, and intersex issues. Um, do, you, do you think that we're not as far as those conversations sometimes make it seem? Or do you think that those conversations are pushing us in the right direction? 
I think those conversations are emerging okay. because of, in a way, as a consequence of this, what I feel is this profound dichotomy, this this emphasis, um, which is much more powerful than it used to be. So if you've got a really long list, prescribed activities, clothes, you know, where you should feel, and you think actually none of the above to that, you think, well, that must be there must be something wrong with me which is where i think the whole kind of identity issue is emerging okay um, so you think it's in response to a sort of more extreme version of gender emerging or i think i yeah oh, I, really? I do oh, I, I think i mean people say to me oh you know what what I do get attacked by transgender people with transgender interests and i say well i it's not my research area so i hate kind of people thinking you're a pundit and you could say something about anything. But what I'm saying I think is relevant because one of the kind of claims is that people say, oh, I've got a, I was born in the wrong box. You know, I've got a female brain in a male body. Um, then I come along and say, actually, there's not really such a thing as a female brain or, or, or male brain, which kind of undermines the argument. But I also say, why don't you challenge the box? Why, why do we have these binary boxes? Mm. Why, why do you have to be one or the other? Why, you know, why... Why is that important? Why why actually do we have do we put male or female on a child's birth certificate or on the NHS? If you go to the NHS, it's Miss. What? <laughs> the first time I had to take that, I went, "What is this?" Yeah. But as, <laughs> as I say, even more profound. I said to somebody, "What? Why?" Yeah, they were talking about changing birth certificates, and I yeah. said, "Well, why do we put that on the birth certificate mm. anyway?" Yeah, good mm. question. No answer, really. We've run out of time. Okay. Your, uh, the gendered brain is it's probably actually, it, it's bound to be out by the time this goes out because it's about two days' time, isn't it? Thursday, it's, uh, it goes out. Thursday, yeah, yeah. so uh, okay. the gendered brain, uh, Professor Gina Rippon and Making Evil by Dr. Julia Shaw. That's out already, isn't it? I think. It is. Yes. Okay. Uh, and there was a lot that we didn't talk about there, both yeah. uh, um, fascinating. And, and, it, and it is, that, I mean, okay. I'll ask you because I asked Gina as well, but you know, for you, do you th- that, that, what do you think is the, is the first way forward of us beginning to understand what? is often seen by people as being that's abhorrent behaviour therefore let's merely believe that this is this special individual and not the shared human possibilities of all of us doing these things I mean I think the two things we can do right now to, to combat what I think are some of the problems that we fall into when we call people evil is one is stop calling people evil mm-hmm. and actually try to explain what it is you're talking about so pick out what, what behaviours are you actually referring to and then how can we maybe try and understand them and then the second thing after you've stopped calling people evil is start looking at yourself and I mean we're all hypocrites in many ways and start looking at your own behavior start looking at your own thinking patterns and try to find the similarities between yourself and people who you might otherwise have labeled evil and try to find that shared humanity because I think that is ultimately what is going to prepare us to be better human beings thank you very much thank you very much for listening thank you for your support Uh, please do Share the podcast on social media. Tell your friends about it if you think they would enjoy it. You can support us by going to cosmicshambles.com slash shop and getting yourself something there or pledge on Patreon, patreon.com slash bookshambles. We'll be back with a new episode of Science Shambles very soon. In the meantime, have fun. Do something fun. This podcast is part of the Cosmic Shambles Network. 